0: We have a special offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our AG magazine for six months for just $39.99 and save 10% on the newsstand price. That's three issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $39.99. You'll find our special subscription offer at australiangeographic.com.au forward slash talking Australia. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash talking Australia.
1: We have a special offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our kids magazine, Australian Geographic Explorers, for six months for just $25. That's three issues of our new magazine made for kids who love our amazing planet and all its animals, delivered to your home for just $25. You'll find our special subscription offer at australiangeographic.com.au slash talkingaustralia underscore explorers. That's australiangeographic.com.au slash talkingaustralia underscore explorers. Hi, I'm Angela
0: Heathcote and this is Talking Australia, a podcast by Australian Geographic. This episode, I'm talking to Corey Tutt. Corey is the person behind deadly science. The initiative aims to provide books and inspiration to kids at some of Australia's most remote schools. What started out with Corey sending out his own books is growing into something much bigger. So I'm really excited to be talking to Corey today on this episode of Talking Australia. Today in the office, we have Corey Tutt. Corey, thank you so much for coming in today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Now, at 27 years old, you've already, you're a New South Wales Australian of the year and you've created a brilliant program known as Deadly Science. And we're going to go into all of that. But first off, I want to take you back to the Illawarra, back to Dapdo High. <laughs> and I want to know what made you tick back then. Were you a science nerd? Were you, a, you know, an ancient history nerd? What, what was your vibe?
1: I always loved history, but I was a mad teenager catching snakes in the paddock at Dapto High. <laughs>
0: <laughs> love that. And what, did you kind of have a love for science at an early age, do you feel?
1: Yeah. Like, so as a kid, I, you know, I had a few traumatic events, events in my life and I, like my sister and I often found comfort in catching reptiles and animals. And I never really grew out of that. Did um, that
0: scare your mum a lot?
1: Oh, definitely. Um, You know, the first tiger snake I caught in Tambi Bay um, as an eight-year-old, I remember getting in so much trouble for.
0: (laughs) So how did you kind of nurture, you know, that that early love of reptiles and animals?
1: I guess that I was always asking why. Um, And it actually comes to the first book I ever learned how to read, and that was Reptiles in Colour by Harold Cogger. And that was a book from the 80s, and it was given to me by my grandfather. Um, and it was the second-hand book, and I actually learned how to read by that book because I was finding all of these reptiles, and I was teaching myself how to read their names, where they're from, and all these amazing things that they did. And then it sort of like moved on to other animals that I would find.
0: Mm. And in terms of, I guess, um, I, I mean, I recently read that you, um, at 17 years old, you kind of went on this trip to Western Australia and I heard your mum was not very happy about that, was really concerned. What what inspired you to kind of leave school early and go on a trip like that?
1: I was often told that I couldn't do things, like I wanted to be a zookeeper and I was told that you needed like two PhDs in zoology yeah. and, you know, that wasn't going to happen for me, so stick with a trade. You know, kids from DAPTO don't really become zookeepers. And I ended up um, seeing an ad on Facebook that this woman who was running this wireless sanctuary had just shot these Jew guides, which are white spotted brown snakes and they're from Western Australia. And I was actually really angry about it and I wanted to change her mindset. So I sort of, I was the first person to ever go to Roo Gully that was under 18 from interstate or international. And so I ended up working at the local pools down at Dapto Um, selling pool tickets and putting salt in the swimming pool. And I saved up enough for a ticket and I ended up going to Western Australia and working at this wildlife sanctuary.
0: And what was your kind of role there?
1: Um, So my role was a volunteer, um, strictly, but I quickly sort of learnt the ropes and got chucked in. And, you know, I was quickly looking after joeys and building gardens and... um, we actually got an agreement with the owner um, to not kill any snakes around the on the paddocks and around the house. So, I don't know how long that lasted until <laughs> after I was gone. But it was um, it was great. That it was a really great experience. Um, mm. I had to grow up pretty quickly.
0: Was it kind of a, a dream for you realized when you got that opportunity to go from volunteer to actually working there?
1: Well, yes, yes and no. Um, it was kind of like I. I realised how hard it actually is to break into the animal industry and how hard it was going to be for me as well. Um, and I had to work hard and I had to learn a lot really quickly.
0: Mm. And what were some of those learnings?
1: Um, you know, how to fill up a syringe so I could feed a kookaburra. <laughs> um, or, you know, how you have to work in a team and you have to really, you have to be really productive and um proactive at working in a team and what you bring to the team and yeah I learned a lot of leadership stuff over there as well
0: and where did you go after your role there
1: so I went to this little place called Narrow Wildlife Park and I started volunteering there until I got put up to a casual zookeeper there and I worked at the zoo for about two years and from that point I you know it was again it was a learning experience you sort of got thrown into things um I remember the first croc nests I raided and I nearly fell through the roof at the zoo. Oh my God. (laughs) Um, So it was all that sort of stuff that I think that, yeah, when I moved to Shadam Zoo, it was, it was just like a different world. It Mm. was, it was crazy. And, um, I'm really grateful for it because I learned a lot.
0: And what were some of the, your, I guess, favorite interactions at that place?
1: Um, we had this baby camel camel called Dynamite and I had an earring at the time, which my mum didn't really like. And... I got knocked out my first week that I worked there. He, well,
0: you learnt your lesson. <laughs> he decided
1: that he wanted to eat my diamond earring that I had in mine. It was a fake diamond, but um, that I had in my ear. So I learnt very quickly not to have any piercings.
0: And I guess at this point you'd worked out what your favourite Australian animals are.
1: Yeah, I, I definitely, like, just to give the listeners, a like, sort of an idea of Shoalhaven Zoo, it's just a, the ecosystem's amazing. So you got rainforest, desert, and then you got the Shohaven River running near it and you just get it like so many different animals, so many different species. Um, the Shoalhaven and the South Coast are really lucky to get those species. I don't think there's any, the diversity there is amazing.
0: Is there one that stands out or is that a really hard question?
1: Such a hard question, <laughs> but I, I've often really enjoyed environments where you can get things like tiger snakes and death adders and red belly black snakes and all these different species of reptiles in the same place um as you get like so you can get desert species along with rainforest species it's pretty amazing
0: mm and in with your initiative deadly science can you tell me about how you i guess made that transition from zoo keeping and um working with animals to kind of how that came along
1: yeah so um i actually remember it really well um it was it as a morning i was about to start my shift and it was in i remember it was like august and I got a call from a detective and my best friend had uh, died. And that was a really, like, that was a real shattering moment for me. And I ended up going to work and I just, I lost sort of the love for the zookeeping and the role that I had. And um, I decided to resign. Um, it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. And I saw an ad in the paper for an alpaca handler. You know, it was called an alpaca handler, which is a rouse about in shearing terms. And we I ended up taking the job. I went to this interview, I went to this guy's house, and was like, Yeah, you got the job. I was like, Oh, that was easy. I'd actually wore a suit. <laughs> <laughs> um, and That's the, why they hired yeah. you. Yeah. And we went up to, um, so we started off in the Southern Highlands. That was my first shift. It was, um, we went up to Bundanoon and we were shearing at Bundanoon. And the first alpaca I went to shear headbutted me in the face and cracked my cheekbone.
0: So it didn't start off well.
1: It didn't start off well. Um, I'd sort of had the brief tutorial in the car of what it would be like and this alpaca saw me and saw me as a rookie and gave me a square headbutt right to the face.
0: But did you learn to love them over time a little bit?
1: I actually did and they're such an incredible animal, Um, you know, that people always see them for their spit but they actually have these amazing abilities. And they're actually such a hardy animal. Um, Often they're sick and you can't tell they're sick. So they can really mask that really well.
0: Mm. And where did you go after you'd worked with the alpacas?
1: So I, after you know, four years of alpaca shearing, I went off to the RSPCA and started working in animal welfare. And that, that was a really challenging time because it was... No longer was I travelling and there was a new place every day. It was You're going to the same place every day for work and it was a really hard adjustment. Um, I really enjoyed working at the RSPCA and um, they kind of, you know, I was living in Sydney at the time as well so the the pay wasn't very good and I was living off two-minute noodles. So I decided that I'd done some studying when I was um, shearing alpacas and I'd done animal technology and animal studies and I ended up um, getting a job down in Garvin the Garvin Institute and being in animal tech and that's how I sort of advanced from there.
0: And what was it like working on working at the RSPCA around animal welfare like what kind of things did you learn on that job?
1: Well I'd taken a lot like so um, shearers get a really bad rap and not all shearers are bad and our packer shearers especially really care about alpacas so I got a really good lesson in How to look after our packers and farm animals, and how to do it humanely and safely. And you know, we always looked after the animals, so we did. We always wormed them when we could, and you know, trimmed their teeth a little bit to make them more comfortable. And like, I learnt a lot about welfare actually being a shearer, and to see it at the RSPCA, and to see, um, you know. it had, like the complex issues that the RSPCA deal with that I, you know, I'd never really thought about and until you work there you don't really know and organisations like the RSPCA are crucial to animal welfare.
0: Mm. And at that point when you were working at the RSPCA, where did you see yourself? Did you see yourself continuing down the animal welfare route?
1: Um, I actually didn't. I I was quite lost. Um, you know, I'd, I'd just left shearing and I... That was sort of my escape for you know losing my my best friend and um it took me a while to sort of find myself again and i was just i was immensely proud to work for someone like the rspca i think that you know i often think about my first job and i think the first time i got a uniform a work uniform i was so proud to wear it and you know i was always proud to wear the rspca uniform but i knew that it probably wasn't the job for me long term and i had to sort of find ways and things that I enjoyed and, um, you know, I always enjoyed still going out to the bush and seeing animals and, you know, looking for snakes, looking for koalas, you know, whatever I could find. And, um, I still did that stuff on weekends and I still did that stuff after work, but it really wasn't quite the same.
0: Mm. So your mindset was kind of like, how do I incorporate all these things I genuinely enjoy doing into, you know, some sort of career?
1: Yeah, and, you know, I'm an Indigenous guy myself. I'm from Kamilaroo country and I always, you know, I've always been connected to Indigenous people and Aboriginal people just throughout my life. And I remember it was before my grandfather died and he he just had such a positive outlook on life. And his, you know, his favourite saying was, well, there you go. Um, every time, you know, you'd talk to him and he was just a magician. Like, he had all these really cool tricks. So he'd pull bark off the tree and it'll be bush soap and...
0: So, he was really critical in your understanding of um, animals and country.
1: Yeah, and you know, he, you know, you don't really see it until someone like that is gone, unfortunately. Sometimes you don't see the full extent of it, but he really, you know, was influential in me um, pursuing, you know, what I wanted to do.
0: We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with Corey in a moment. We have a special offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our AG magazine for six months for just 39.99 and save 10% on the newsstand price. That's three issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $39.99. You'll find our special subscription offer at Australian Geographic.com.au forward slash talking Australia. That's Australian Geographic.com.au forward slash talking Australia. We are back with Corey Tutt. And in terms of, um, you know, deadly science, when did that come into play?
1: So, I mean, we've been calling it deadly science for about 18 months, but I've been doing this sort of work for about five years. And I started talking to kids in Redfern and we were talking about space stations, right? And these amazing, <laughs> um, you know, bits of machinery up in the sky. And you'd say, oh, you know, there's astronauts up there. And they'd be like, no way. And you show them and they go, well, how do they get food up there? Or how do they get oxygen up there? And it's like, well, then it just develops questions like that. And then about 18 months ago, I wanted to do more. And, you know, there's a whole other part of Australia that we don't get to see being in the city, and that's regional and remote Australia. And I decided that I would Google most remote schools. And I Googled them, and I got their phone numbers, and I had a bit of a yarn to them. And I'm like, you know, Corey from Gamilara Country. I just wanted to see what kind of science programs you had. And, you know, one of the schools that I rang is like, we've only got 15 books in there. (laughs) And they had over 300 kids, like, and they, you know, attendance is poor out there. And um, I decided to pack up every book I own, especially the Reptiles and Color book um, that I had from Harakoga that I still had, and I packed it up and I sent it to the school. And that school had other schools, and then I called a few more, and then now I've got over 100 schools.
0: What were the kind of impacts that you saw when you sent that first set of books?
1: It was more, um, you know, just the teachers were just grateful to have more resources at first. Um, and it was stuff that was interesting. You know, it's interesting to learn about that cool lizard with that pattern or that cool snake or that cool plant that grows that, you know, the old fellas tell you about that you can eat, you know, and learn about that sort of form of of science or to see a whale when you're in the outback and you don't get to see that whale ever. You know, I'll tell you a story. We, um, We took some kids, um, from Jill Communion, one of the first schools I worked with down to Sydney and I made sure they got to go to Shronga Zoo. And these kids had never seen the ocean before, ever, ever. So, and they hated stairs. (laughs) You don't get stairs in Catherine, um, but you know, to see an elephant for the first time or a tiger and it's like, why is it chucking dirt on its back? Well, it's for sunscreen. You know, we need sunscreen so we, we don't get skin cancer. And, you know, that to tie it back into that was just really incredible.
0: Mm. And how did it kind of, I guess, um, snowball into, I guess, this bigger program where it went from you kind of, you know, delivering books that you had personally to kind of a, a bigger, bigger situation?
1: Um, it was more word of mouth. So people in communities started hearing about it and they started yarning at other communities and then other schools and... Um, you know, Scott Ryan from Joondalup Indian School was a really big um, help because not only did he tell the masses about this thing that we just started called Deadly Science, but it was about you know it turned into more about these kids are actually so the gap wasn't in knowledge, it was in resources, and that was you know part of the big thing of what I wanted to do is what you can't be what you can't see. So why can't these kids look for a telescope? dream, you know, why can't they look at Saturn or the moon or, you know, the stars and learn about their history as well as ours. And I think that, um, that's sort of how it snowboard was just the word of mouth.
0: Mm. And I, once it snowboard, I guess, how did you manage, you know, because obviously it went beyond your, you know, personal book collection and you must've had to, I guess, look for other resources. How did that kind of develop?
1: So I actually got a second job. So I was working at a pet hotel at night. And I was doing my Sydney uni job as an animal technician and I was working myself into the ground and my partner and, um, a few other people said, you should get to go fund me cause people would donate to this. And I'm pretty, like, I'm pretty proud and I, I didn't want to take money off people because it's not how I was brought up or I'd never had experience with crowdfunding. So I always thought crowdfunding was for, you know, really sad cases and, um, Yeah, I set up a GoFundMe and then within a couple of weeks, like 30 people had donated and I was just so grateful and um, we were able to do more. We had to send some more books and more, you know, telescopes telescopes and resources out to communities and that was really special.
0: And what do you think is one of the best things that um, kids in remote schools get out of deadly science that you've seen?
1: You can't be what you can't see and they get to see it and they get to believe it. Even for a second, they get to believe it that they're Mm. capable of that and belief is so powerful.
0: Mm. Because I guess um, you said earlier about how when you were younger, everyone was telling you that you couldn't do stuff um, because you went to DAPTO high. So I guess in a way uh, you're trying to combat that.
1: Yeah, certainly. Um, You know, I'm trying to change the outcomes for these people and you don't have to be a scientist. You don't have to wear a lab coat either and scientists can be any. Anything, and they've got the perfect scientists right down the road—the rangers—and they're doing practical science. Mm. And, and there's
0: been a lot of, um, I guess, recent um, recent reports about how important Indigenous rangers are and, and their knowledge. Um, can you go into how, I guess, that works with deadly science?
1: Yeah, so we have we have some connections with the rangers up there, um, but you know, just on average, like we looked, I looked at a bill we studied the other day, and it's on average Indigenous rangers can find them six seconds faster than the researchers all the bells and whistles and the tracking devices. I think that speaks volumes of Indigenous science and you know local knowledge. Um, these kids want to be rangers, just like kids in the city want to be superstars, they want to be football players, they want to be singers. The kids in the remote communities want to be rangers because the rangers are the superstars. Mm.
0: And I guess it's not just in terms of, um, you know, um, environmental, uh, the environmental side of things and animals, but it's also you're seeing all these, um, all these new articles and new books coming out about um, Aboriginal astronomy and things like that. Who do you see as kind of leading the charge with those kinds of topics?
1: Well, obviously, Bruce Pascoe's book, Dark Emu, has been very popular. But there's another book called Australia's First Naturalist, which is by Lynette Russell and Penny Olson. And I think that's probably just as culturally significant, that book, as Dark Emu, because it's the early early intervention in zoology by Aboriginal people. And it's about how Aboriginal people planted certain trees to attract animals, and you only took what you need. And that's a really big lesson. I think we waste so much food in Australia because we... You know, we don't always eat what we need, and we don't always use it all. Um, there's a really good um, bit of history that with the Maori culture, and it's similar to the Aboriginal culture, because we probably did the same thing. And it's when a whale washed up on a beach, it was a blessing from God, and that they used the whole whale. So they used the oil to cook with, they used the bones to make structures with and tools like hammers. Um, but if you look at Aboriginal history, we use the bone to make fishing hooks, we use the whole whale.
0: So it's about using the entire thing with no waste.
1: No waste at all. And, um, you know, if you catch, if the world's first fish traps were in Australia, you know, 65 years and years plus, and those fish traps, you know, we we let go fish that we didn't need. Fish felt too small, we'll catch you another day. And that's a really valuable lesson. Um, so it's the people that are telling those stories that are really important because it can't just come from one person. It's got to come from, we've got to accept it. And, um, you know, one of the things I like to say is that, you know, the Egyptians own the pyramids, right? So they own the pyramids. And now to own the pyramids, you have to accept some of the bad. But the pyramids are amazing and they, every Egyptian is proud of the pyramids. We need to be proud of Aboriginal culture as well. But to own the good stuff, we've got to own some of the bad.
0: Mm. In terms of scientific knowledge, I guess there's now been a push about oh, how far we've come in terms of acknowledging Aboriginal ingenuity in so many different areas. Um, but I guess there isn't a lot about, you know, how far we have to go. So yep. I was wondering how you see that roadmap.
1: A lot of our, a lot of our history and a lot of our culture is verbalized, and we we don't have long left because a lot of the old people are dying. And when they they, die, the history goes with that. So we need to listen now. And the more we listen, the more we'll learn. And, you know, if you look at on the east coast of Australia, you have the dark emu constellation. And that used to tell us through the change of season when the season was about to change and when to collect emu eggs. Now, that's a pretty amazing bit of history there. And you can still find that dark emu in the sky today. And that, you know... We need to be able to maintain those things because they're actually really interesting. And for, not, for non-Indigenous people, also Aboriginal people, they deserve to know their history and how like our people were trailblazers and <laughs> an advanced civilization.
0: Mm. And what's, what's next on the, on the cards for Deadly Science?
1: Look, I want to reduce the cost of food and community by building sustainable smart gardens. I want to make sure that every kid has access to books, resources... Um, drink bottles that they can have the access to thrive, and you know that that's a big job, and it's it's a really big job to do on your own. So I need as much support as I can, and the support I've had has been really grateful. And together, I always say it's the Deadly Science family or the Deadly Science mob. And you know, whether you're a kid getting a certificate or reading a Deadly Science book, or you know, a person on the internet sort of liking a photo and retweeting deadly science, then you're part of the journey or wearing one of the shirts that we sell to raise money. You know, Which
0: you... I really want, by the way. That's an amazing shirt. We
1: will hook you up.
0: <laughs> well, Corey, thank you so much for chatting with me today.
1: No worries. Thanks for having me.
0: That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia with Corey Tutt. If you have questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com or find us on Instagram at australian geographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash talking Australia, you'll find a special subscription offer. So don't wait. Go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash talking Australia. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcast from. Thanks for listening. Until next time.